Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey there, folks. Just wanted to jump on mic here before we start the show proper and give a shout out to our sponsor for this week. And it is uh, our good friends over at the Criterion Collection, just doing what they do, putting out really cool Blu-ray releases of art house films, foreign films, documentaries, and even uh, some newer releases Criterion has been getting into in the last few years. And that leads me to uh, our specific Blu-ray to look out for that's coming out this week. Uh, today is September 10th as I release this. It's coming out on the 11th, and that is The Tree of Life. Terrence Malick's, uh, for some people, his masterwork or his ultimate kind of film that he's put out so far. Uh, one that I'm a little bit more mixed on, but man, the highs are really high in that film. And also especially excited to see this version that Criterion has put out because there is a new, uh, much longer three-hour cut of this movie also available to the regular cut on this Blu-ray. So that alone makes this worth uh, pursuing and picking up and checking out, as does the fact that I just want to see the movie again and uh, tons of other cool special features on here as well. So uh, we thank Criterion, as always, for their support of this show and for putting out super cool Blu-ray. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Uh, Adjust Your Tracking is a part of the Playlist Podcast Network. You can find uh, all of our episodes and the sh- uh, episodes from our other shows on the network at theplaylist.net. And if you, whatever podcatcher of your choice you use, you can find our shows on the Playlist Podcast Network. That's where you want to find us. And listen to us, subscribe, all those things. Um, so, Joe, what are we? Uh, what are we getting into in this episode? I don't know. That was those. I felt like I was co-hosting with Johnny Cab for a second, and it's just <laughs> we're like. So you're Arnold so Schwarzenegger. Like, Joe, how are you doing today? Well, good. By the way, we are a podcast brought to you in part by the playlist. Dot. What the fuck is going on? <laughs> so you're. Hope you enjoyed the ride. <laughs> yeah, you're Arnold Schwarzenegger in this instance. I'm jealous. Thank you so much. You should have saved that for next week, dude. When we talk about Predator. True. Pred- the the whole the whole like legacy of Predator. Um, oh, you but right. we're not we're not talking about Predator this week. We are talking about Mandy. You're a special one, Mandy. I too am a special one. Let us be so very special together. So what are you going to do with that thing? Going hunting. So what you hunting? It's crazy evil. You think you're so in love? I'll show you love. I don't mind that this is another movie with someone's first name as the title in a avalanche of other movies named after people's first name. Um, there's too many to keep track of. The Christines, the Thelmas, the uh, Victorias, the yeah. now Mandy's. You know, there's even more to add to that, but I just don't. I don't want to get off on a, Annabelle's. Where? What else? Um, yeah, but shit, anyway, I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> but you're right. Yeah. It's common. It's very common. I contributed your share as well. Thanks, so <laughs> Mandy is the second feature from uh, director Panos Cosmatos, whose first film was Beyond the Black Rainbow, which came out in 2012 mm. after like a, a, a healthy festival run. And it was uh, one that we discussed on very early on in Adjust Your Tracking. And um, 
Uh, both films uh, are, you know, they take place in the year 1983, which, you know, maybe there's a subreddit about the significance of the year 1983 to yeah. <laughs> director Cosmatos, but uh, it's, uh, it's interesting, like something that is really compelling about him is that uh, he like, you know, like, I joke often that culture has peaked and everything is now just derivative and just an, an homage to a, a bygone era where, you know, there, there was relevance that has since uh, <laughs> dissipated. It's a joke. Okay. Everybody <laughs> just grow up. Um, but like, there is like a sort of, a, a potentially empty kind of homage that like, you know, the, the countless amounts of movies, that take place in the 1980s, not to mention the TV series such as Stranger Things and whatnot um, that are set in the 80s and also evoke the feel of like, you know, totems from the 1980s. Like something that's interesting about um, Pedros Cosmatos is, am I pronouncing his name differently every time? I hope so. Slight hope variations. <laughs> yeah. Cosmatos. Cosmatos. You Cosmatos. say Cosmatos. I say Cosmatos. <laughs> so um, what's interesting to me about him is that like for his first film, Beyond the Black Rainbow, he said that it was a movie. It was the movie that he imagined from looking at the covers of movies he wasn't allowed to watch in the 1980s from the video store. Yeah. And so like that, that sense of like a world hinted at, but not necessarily actualize because you know if you're being honest with yourself like there's a lot of movies who had iconic cover art for like their vhs releases that were like not good movies they just had very evocative covers and they they made a dent and an impression that was like indelible and so like to to take something as an entry point and create the world that those covers promised but didn't necessarily deliver is I think a new kind of homage and one that has like a, 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 an urgency that isn't necessarily derivative of a given era or place and time. Yeah. There's a timelessness to it. And it's like, it's something that hasn't been done and he finds these like intersections between things. And um, if you, if before we dive full on into Mandy, um, you rewatched beyond the black rainbow recently, right? Indeed. Um, that's yeah. That's all I. That's all I was wondering. Um, <laughs> so, like, do you remember how you initially responded to it when we covered it on the podcast in like 2012? I literally know how we feel about it because I actually went back and listened to that episode, um, and it's a brief segment uh, because we talked about the Dark Knight Rises on that very very early AYT episode. Oh wow! Yeah, and we sprinkled it at the end with some smaller stuff like Black Rainbow and uh, another pretty interesting movie, but I'm blanking on. So it's a brief segment, but um, we definitely went for it. I would say the majority of our conversation was focused on like, surprise, surprise. We're kind of lamenting that like when the episode came out, it literally was out of theaters that day uh, in Portland where we were. So it was it was one of those where like, God damn, this only played at one little theater in town and that was it. And it's such a theatrical movie. You know, it's it is cinematic in that way. So we definitely took to it in that way. Um, my feeling upon seeing it the second time is at least on my memory, like of how I felt when I first saw it, I liked it, but I actually, I liked it more this time because once you kind of know the simplicity of it all and that it's a, such a mood and tone based film, yeah, you can really just like kind of slither into the rhythm of it. And it's just like a fun movie to be like wrapped in. Uh, wrapped into and just like enjoy um it's really simple and i think that's a very obvious connection to mandy when we get into it is like plot narrative not a big concern for for uh cosmatos uh at this point so uh i'm gonna keep you know also uh pronouncing it differently um yeah (laughs) um so the the these two movies his first two features do sort of speak to each other as you said both set in 83 i thought that was an interesting decision as I've read a little bit more about both movies and Cosmatos talking about them is they both are sort of a, a, a yin and yang to him dealing with the grief of losing his parents uh, and yeah. his, his dad, George B George P Cosmatos who did tombstone and uh, a couple of the Rambo movies or the sequel. Did he do? I can't remember. 
Yikes. You know, um, yeah, he did Rambo First Blood Part Two. He did Cobra, which was oh. another Sylvester Stallone movie. He also yeah. did Leviathan with Peter Weller, one of the oh, yeah. like, three underwater movies that came out that year. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, a Sean and Christoph Whiteman favorite of Unknown Origin, where, uh. Uh, where it's about rats. Okay. Yeah, I don't know that one well, but good shout out to friends of the shows there, the Whitemans. Um, of course. Yeah, very nice. Uh, so um, uh, these movies sort of are speaking to each other from the, at least from the sort of like, you know, the perspective of the filmmaker. And that's really cool. It's a shame it took so long between films. I'd love to know more of that story, but I, I haven't heard yet why the delay. Maybe it's hard for uh, Panos to get some movies funded. But um, Beyond the Black Rainbow was a really great revisit. It was a sort of movie that I liked when I saw it the first time. But this time I was like, oh, man, this guy's really I really like the wavelength he's on. And I I like the way you put it, that there is something it's subtle, but it's something different about this kind of homage to something that's pretty played out like 80s nostalgia, because this doesn't feel nostalgia based. This feels like someone trying to like just root himself in an era that he is appreciative of remembers probably coming to love film at that time. And I feel like what he's doing is different. And he wants to make these very like abstracted painting versions of those sleazy low budget genre movies. And, um, really took to it with this, this second viewing of, of black rainbow. So did, did you get to catch up with it recently or I did, I, I I rewatched it yesterday and finding the sense of like something operatic and enormous in both films, basically mm-hmm. in like the sort of look and you know, it, cause there's like a tone and an atmosphere that like, you could argue that beyond the black rainbow has like touches of, you know, Kubrick. And I think like, Kubrick was a touchstone, you know, he always will be. But like, I think particularly in like 2012, there was just like a lot of like people kind of pointing fingers at like, this is Kubrickian, you know, yeah. the same way that everybody was saying how John Carpentery people's synth scores were like a few right. years after that. And so like, there's, there's something kind of cold and sterile about the environment that seems kind of like 2001 like, and there's like a, a very evocative retro futurist look that kind of feels like clockwork orangey at times. Mm -hmm. But like what he's good at is just like finding these intersections of like where things overlap in our collective consciousness our collective like pop consciousness yeah. So like I, I think he it there the the overlap is particularly interesting in Mandy because it just takes like the the kind of science fiction fantasy cover art from like novels, takes heavy metal imagery and Clive Barker and then all just like melds them all seamlessly into something that looks entirely different than any of the things he's referencing. Yeah. You know, and like and so so beyond the black rainbow, like it, it is a tone poem in the sense that like, it's, it's an exercise in style, tone and atmosphere. And I think where it's improved upon with his second feature is that like all of these kind of striking moments have like a pulse in Mandy in terms of like there being a propulsive narrative where it's like, there's though you argued that like, plot isn't the point in either movie mm-hmm. there seems to be more at stake at least in uh mandy than there is in beyond the black rainbow because like yeah the circumstances are a little elusive at times you're not necessarily sure what's going on in this compound where this woman is being researched you know in this highly heightened stylized environment and uh you know she's like honing her telekinetic powers while this guy played by Michael Rogers is kind of overlording over her, which I think we cited his performance. Uh, we did. Yeah. He's great. He's great. He's really funny. And there's like, <laughs> there's definitely a parallel in Linus Roach's character who plays um, yes. Jeremiah in Mandy. Like there's just something kind of like, there's a menace that's measured like in how slowly and deliberately both of them speak in either movie. Mm hmm there's a lot of parallels actually between the two films. Like there's direct scenes that mirror each other. Um, and I think that that's something that like, a- as he continues to carve out a space that seems entirely unique to him, like it, it'll be interesting to revisit his work. Like the more he kind of like echoes 
his own moments. And Mm -hmm. like, it doesn't feel derivative. It feels like something ideas that he's like fleshing out and continuing to, especially since he considers both movies to be kind of like yin and yang, like you said, like they're connected definitely in terms of like, the processing of something overwhelming, like the grief of losing both parents, right. you know? Right. Well, and then um, even more so than I think a direct like plot propulsiveness, which Mandy does comparatively definitely does. Right. But it's, it's like, there's a payoff. There's like, um, yeah. I get the sense with Mandy that this is a director that's ready to be a little bit more of an entertainer than he did with his first film. And that's right. not a pejorative. I understand what he, especially after that second viewing of Black Rainbow, I really like get what he was going for. And I love that. I appreciate it. But there is something so just gutturally satisfying about when Mandy takes its turn into what it's going to be, when it really just becomes a revenge story. And there are real, true entertainment payoffs. And the one thing I would cite as uh, maybe a knock on Black Rainbow is he really builds it up in that movie so well, but it kind of ends up being almost entirely build up with a, almost a sort of afterthought of a, of a release because the end, the climax is just so like, um, it's strange how kind of, um, out of random it is the way it concludes. Yeah. Um, yeah. It feels, it feels kind of anticlimactic, which yeah. like for a movie so deliberate, you have to assume that like, Oh, there must be some methodology behind like, you know, there's a, there's a climax essentially where the woman who's being, you know, uh, experimented on in this, this facility and beyond the black rainbow escapes. And, um, was like moving through, I think it was shot in Canada. I can't be sure. Um, but you know, moving through some remote Canadian wilderness and is preyed upon by the, the main scientists for, from the, Aborea, Arborea, yeah, is that right? Uh, yes. Laboratories, mm-hmm. and in their final kind of like confrontation with each other, he just falls over. <laughs> it just trips on a stick and dies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and like my friend pointed out when we saw it in the theater, because like I I actually saw it at uh, Cine Family when it was still in existence, and it was like a sold out show, and. uh he was, you know, he was like, what was with that McMuffin of an ending where he just, uh, <laughs> not what do you call it? Where something is like introduced at the last minute to resolve a, a conflict or a, a predicament, a McMuffin. Uh, I've not heard that, but that's cute. I, are you referring to Deus Ex Machina? <laughs> yeah. Or a MacGuffin. Whatever. <laughs> you sure? Yeah. I don't. Let's say McMuffin. That's too adorable. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, the McMuffin in this one is that he, he rips, falls and cracks his head open and you're like, what what and like but the movie is so thorough that it's almost just like you you take it on as your own like if if that seemed dopey or sort of like uh lazy you're just the movie has earned enough goodwill that you know it like it's it's fine and especially the concluding image in the movie where she's like coming out of the wilderness and there's this like perfectly like this is where I feel like the movies mirror each other is because like there's this like this wide shot of this like perfectly 1980s suburb with a kind of like poltergeist television flicker in one window. Yeah. Like coming out of the woods and it's so painterly. And like, that's something that he does, you know, like working with his, his DPs is that like he creates these like, these like almost pastoral images, these like these, these kind of like fantasy cover art images. And it's like, none of it looks overly computer generated. Mm -hmm. It looks like very like natural, but almost like just impossibly evocative at times. Yeah. And the movie just ends and it like all of a sudden uh, a, a song by Stacy Q's former band SSQ comes on, which I'd never heard before when I first saw it. I was just like, what, what is this? And it like turned, it, it's actually from 1983. Nice. You, you remember Stacy Q two of hearts. You're way over my head at this point. All right. I'm going in deep. Um, Do it. So it'll, it'll be on this episode at some point you'll hear anonymous by SSQ. But um, <laughs> yeah, like he, he has just like a knack for eliciting these sort of like hidden hidden connections between like these things that have like influenced all of us who have been, you know, like open at some point, you know, to pop culture, like throughout decades. And yeah, let's go full bore into Mandy, which, um, 
you know, it's a, like it's it's a like it feels epic as like as big as Beyond the Black Rainbow can feel in its suffocating environment and its claustrophobic environment. There was a sense of style that made it look like a, just a lot more expansive and massive than it probably was. Like it probably didn't cost a lot of money to make that movie, but it, it all is sort of like thoroughly and meticulously created and stylized in that film. Most definitely. And with Mandy, there's just an enormity to the world. Yeah. And it's uh, it, it takes place. It opens up in 1983, mm-hmm. uh, which is the year that my car was born. Um, oh, nice. And, uh, <laughs> And we're following a couple who lives in, you know, the remote wilderness, the shadow mountains, as as it's referred to in the film. Yeah. And it, uh, the character of Red and Mandy, Red played by Nicolas Cage. Yes. Mandy played by uh, Andrea Riseborough. Is that how you say her last name? I say Riseborough, but whatever. Okay. Well, let's just, you know, you say Riseborough, I say Riseborough. Who says what? <laughs> <laughs> it's the theme of this so, episode. So... We were following them, and like the the first twenty minutes is just like getting to know like them, their routine in this like kind of like remote area, and like there is such genuine like chemistry between them and a tenderness that like he really lets you get to know mm-hmm. before anything else is introduced. And the movie like what what he does exceptionally well, and I would argue that, you know, there's, there's less of a, a propulsiveness to beyond the black rainbow, but what he does exceptionally well is like, he lets like this, like this, he draws out moments and sequences yeah. that like with, with such an attentiveness to tension and just like, and focus on like, you know, the fascinating aspects of what's happening. Like, and beyond the black rainbow, her crawling through like a, a an air conditioning vent, like, and just uh, having that be like a five minute sequence, and you're not even aware of how much time has passed because right. it's like it's so focused and so intense. Like that's something that he continues in the tradition of with Mandy, and just like he builds and builds to this impossible crescendo, and like so. Uh, as they're living in this remote wilderness in 1983, they get Mandy gets discovered by a group that feels like a cult, you know, kind of culty with like a Peter Fonda looking uh, <laughs> lead guy played by Linus Roach, as I mentioned, who plays Jeremiah, a former folk singer who started this, you know, kind of weird borderline satanic cult that also lives in the woods. And he becomes fixated on Mandy and how to get her. And, uh, so like from there, the movie takes some sharp turns into, you know, literally demonic territory. And uh, it just like it enters this entirely operatic, like just spectrum. It's like it's so intense and overwhelming and like takes like an hour to get there. But like mm-hmm. you don't even notice because it's so thoroughly immersive. Yeah, this one's two hours, so it's significantly longer than Black Rainbow, but it, it's it, ten minutes longer than Black Rainbow. Oh, but okay. Oh, why did I think that movie was shorter? All right, I'm an idiot. You're right. Because um, <laughs> it just breezed by for you. You were just all, exactly. all on board. Like, wow, what a page turner this is. Muffins <laughs> uh, <Big> aside, <laughs> it's true. Um, so ignore that. But uh, regardless, Mandy has such a nice buildup in that way. But I really want to focus at least initially on. I guess the inciting incident that creates that turns this into a revenge story is the thing with Linus Roach's character. They essentially abduct uh, Andrea Riseborough because he just wants her. He, he got a look at her and he's like, I want her. And then the fact that the movie's set in 1983, I think adds more to this because, you know, at this point we're out of the sixties and seventies sort of traditionally known as the hippie area. uh, And he's sort of like a, a curdled, sort of become a bastardized version of those ideals. He's even a yeah. folks. He would be the kind of guy that probably made music like the last movie that drove you crazy last yeah. week, you know? So yeah. I like that. He's got this band and he's sort of a, he's not a Charles Manson type, but he's sort of on that sort of a spectrum. Right. And right. And the fact that he's just purely evil gets built up in a way that really works for this movie. Like I didn't need a bunch of complexity. That's not, I think, what Panos is really up to with his, these first couple movies. I like that he's a very just evil dude, 
But um, where it gets very interesting is uh, what happens essentially that creates a revenge movie. And I'm not, I don't want to give it away because I think it's such an amazing sequence to be discovered. But um, I will say that there is a long drawn out drug sequence in this movie. And if there's ever something that's often going to make me start rolling my eyes in a movie, even one I'm really into drug sequences often do that because it's usually just more fun to do the drugs than it is to watch someone in a TV show or a movie go through it. And it also, I think causes a lot of uh, filmmakers to lean into like stereotypes or cliches or things that are just sort of like not really an experience on like hallucinatory drugs. This movie absolutely is like one of the great examples, I think of like a hallucination sequence that like works on a, uh, a visceral level for the viewer, but um, also is like functioning with a bunch of other things going on besides just creating what will be like the plot turn. Uh, and it's just uh, some of it is just visual touches, like merging the faces of Andrea Risebro with Linus Roche, like that sequence where they're kind of looking into camera is incredible. The extremely, and this is even compared to black rainbow, the extreme lighting techniques in this movie uh, I think there's a lot of digital coloring techniques used as well to get these intense reds, mm-hmm. intense purples, th- colors that feel like you're looking at a blacklight poster. And it works so yeah. well for this movie. But then there's yeah. the when it gets ugly and when bad things happen, I think you get into the idea of this guy, this uh, this sort of traveling folk musician, post-hippie dude. He gets emasculated, basically, in a very direct way. And he can't handle it. And I think without the movie dwelling on that, it's just there. Because, again, I do think Mandy is a relatively simple movie. But I love it that there's all this other stuff like that going on where it's like, oh, man, I think there's like a commentary there that's that's just subtly being put into this film to just add layers to it. But just the idea of like, you know, masculinity just being laughed at. Uh, is really compelling, even more so in this era it's set in of like the 80s kind of muscle movie, the muscle action movie or a revenge movie. So um, I think there's a lot of layers to that. And then, you know, I think there's a whole other discussion to be had about Nicolas Cage uh, in this movie because he's incredible. But um, I want to hand it off to you. And just like, I know we talked off mic about that that druggy sequence and the complexity of it. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I was a fan. Did did that, was that like, were you already into the movie at that point or did it really grab you then? Because that's kind of what happened to me. Yeah, I think the the movie definitely already had me at that point, but that it reached this like kind of zenith of intensity in that section. And like, you know, when I mentioned that the the two films kind of mirror each other, like that's at like the halfway point of the movie almost. And similar, there's a similar hallucinatory sequence in Beyond the Black Rainbow where you get the history of the uh, the sort of like the the lab that like you're the most of the movie is set in. Like right. there's a whole backstory of like hallucinogens that the scientists took in order to sort of. Uh, create this new kind of uh, this evolution of humanity almost. And it, it's a very trippy sequence. And I'm surprised actually that you, 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 you like, you know, your, your, your eyes roll at trippy sequences. I was going to ask you what your favorite ones are, but that's uh, yeah, a good question, man. I mean, I'd have to think about it some more, but one jump street, um, <laughs> for sure. but see, that's the sort of thing that usually comes to mind. At least when I reference that it's like kind of goofy comedies that play up like, yeah, that can be funny and everything, but it just always feels like phony, like in a cartoonish way. Um, right. Yeah. But, but, um, yeah. I don't know. I like uh, I like the sequence in the song remains the same. The Led Zeppelin concert movie that has like there's a moment where Robert Plant is like in a medieval setting and he eats a mushroom and the movie just starts to hallucinate. That's that's a good one. I like that. Uh, one. Well, you just made me hate hallucination sequences as I don't care for Led Zeppelin. But anyway, back oh to Mandy. God. Um, <laughs> So at, at at that point where it reaches this like zenith of intensity, like you you see basically why it turns into a revenge movie, and like it was at at that point like you know Nicolas Cage was already charming, subtle, and understated throughout like you know the first half of the movie, yeah. and you know we haven't even mentioned the score by 
Johan Johansson, which was his last score that I know of that he worked on before he passed away. Yeah, um, yeah. And he, like, there, there's something just so, just in like, there's a sense of like galactic expansiveness in this movie <laughs> yes. while still feeling impossibly claustrophobic. Yes. So that's like these two things working against each other. And like, though I'm not a fan of like doom metal, like, or at least I don't follow it. Like those seem to be like the, those seem to be like work in that music that there's like, there's, there's a, there's an enormity to it. There's an epic kind of like quality to the massiveness of the sound, but there's something menacing closing in on you that feels claustrophobic. And like, that's the sort of duality that this film lives in. Yeah. And so like the score perfectly elicits that in this like middle section and like it reaches this like peak and like the sound is overwhelming and you're just watching Nicolas Cage at a breaking point. He's screaming, but you can't hear him. All you hear is the music. Yes. And like it's he's so emotive. His face is in complete anguish. Like it's painful to watch. Like and this is crucial for the movie to sort of like become the revenge movie that it eventually becomes to hit those crescendos and to give you the payoff that you were talking about and like watching someone who like, you know, like Nicholas cage, I, I think at people's tackiest reception of him has become a novelty, you know, like he's, he's clearly an incredible actor with an insane range, but he freaks out in his movies and those freakouts have become, you know, fodder for viral videos and shit like that. And like, what people refer to as cage rage and um, you know, like you want to see him go nuts and like that's, that's become the kind of novelty, but you also are like in, you know, like in doing that sort of trivializing the sort of like complexity of him as an actor, you know, cause he's like, he is incredible at times. Yeah. And in this movie, is that incredible actor that you like you've always been kind of checking for, even as he's made straight to VOD movies for like the past 10 years, you know, like, so watching like going from that scene, which is devastating into a scene where, uh, Panos basically stops stylizing the movie. He drops you in after this like moment of devastation that kickstarts the revenge section of the movie he shows uh, Nicholas Cage's characters collapsing in a bathroom that's sort of like, you know, has tacky wallpaper. Like we go from like this super psychedelic lighting of the rest of the movie that heightens everything that gives it a, a, that kind of like weird swirl to everything. And he just drops into this overlit tacky bathroom <sighs> and then lets Nicholas Cage just like wreak havoc. Like he just goes nuts. <laughs> and like, it's that perfect mixture where you're watching uh, a very a, a stylist as a filmmaker, a, a hyper stylish filmmaker, let an actor perform, you know, and like it were, you know, there's just the, that push and pull of like a very signature specific director not allowing a performance to happen. You know, like a few years ago when Mad Max Fury Road came out, uh, you know, George Miller's a, he's a great filmmaker. And like with Fury Road, he made a, a hyperkinetic, insanely stylish addition to his Mad Max universe. But in that, you know, he cast Tom Hardy as Mad Max. And then Tom Hardy in the press was just like, was like I didn't know what was going on. And like his, his, it shows in his performance. Like he doesn't, like he's like a weird Wiley Coyote kind of performance where he's like, yeah, that's more, uh, <laughs> Tasmanian devil. Um, but like, and then he was like, once I saw the movie, I understood what he was going for. I was like, well, why couldn't you have rooted your performance and stuff? I don't know. There, there was just like, there needs to be an established understanding. And it seems like there is that in, in Mandy between Nicolas Cage and between Panos Cosmatos that like, he trusts him and he trusts that like there's, there's a thoroughness to the universe and like he can emotionally root his performance in order to then go berserk and have it still land, you know, and have it not be sort of lost in the sort of hyper kineticism of a stylist at work, you know, like the same can be said, I think for, um, you know, uh, you were never really here mm. with Joaquin Phoenix's 
performance, you know, that like that movie is intensely edited, is like very, very stylistically edited. And in that you still get a humanistic, deep rooted performance from Joaquin Phoenix. You know? Right, right. And, and thanks like, to this relationship with Lynn Ramsey. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, those are really interesting counterpoints because Mandy is a movie that often he at least at this point in his career, Panos doesn't move the camera a ton. He likes to let scenes breathe. He'll frame and kind of hold the camera a lot. Right. And and that's different to to that comparison. But that's it allows these moments to just reach peaks. And him and Nicolas Cage do seem like a very good combination to bring out and encourage or whatever, just like trust that he'll let Nicolas Cage do his thing. And I think Nicolas Cage knows what he's doing as an actor. Yes. He's, I think for like tax reasons, I think he's in debt. He's done a lot of garbage straight to VOD type movies for years, as you, as you mentioned. And um, I think he's become a joke to the general audience of moviegoers. And that might uh-huh. be, that might be an uphill battle for this movie, but I think it's the kind of thing like you see the trailer and you start to see like how awesome this movie just looks. Um, and mm-hmm. hopefully hopefully that is enough. But this is definitely a small release. But gosh, man, like a movie that hopefully people can see on the big screen. It is from a fa- small distributor, RLJE. They did. You said they did mm-hmm. Brawl and Cell Black 99 last year. Yeah. I yeah. Think. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they're they're only kind of just getting into the the theatrical release game. Point being, I I'm glad Manny's getting some of a push. I'm like super excited personally to get to see it on a big screen. But um, it's those sequences. It's that Nicolas Cage performance that elevates this and matches so well with the filmmaking that um, I don't know, man. It's such a like when it becomes a revenge movie. It's like right after the scene you were referencing. Um, it becomes such a fucking fun ride and it's still gnarly and dark and very much a metal movie. And I'm mm-hmm. like you, I don't really go for that genre of music, but I was so pleased to go through that experience in a movie context. Like it really worked for me in that way. And I also thought of even stuff like heavy metal, the animated movie. I feel like there's yeah, a lot. Absolutely. Uh, there's yeah. animated sequences in the movie that sort of like harken back to, to that film, you yeah, know, specifically the animation style too. It's very much, yeah, direct and, and feels appropriate. Cause that movie came out, I think a couple years before 83. Um, so it's, it's right in line with all that. And, there is this great swirl, this great mixture of things that does, I think, and it's the hardest thing for these sort of homage directors to do is to carve out their own unique type of movie from the, the parts that they've assembled from their past that they love. Um, but yeah. I, I think um, I really came away from Mandy on this first viewing. I'm thinking like, it, I mean, for me, Panos kind of fits into a triangle with, uh, I think two other directors we admire, um, uh, Anna Lily Amir Poor and Nicholas Winding Refn, but I think mm-hmm. they all do different things, or, or they all have their own style, but they're all doing a similar sort of like homage style film, a, a sort of grab bag of things they like to try to create something new that does feel rooted yeah. in a style from the past, and that's really exciting to me. I like that because it's a it's a really awesome mix of like simple genre exercises with like art house pretensions. And I actually really like that mix. It doesn't always create something great, but um, I do think Panos has sort of elevated himself to, to their echelon. And uh, you know, those are directors uh, quite fond of. So um, this is a, like we haven't even come out and say it. If it isn't obvious, like I really like Mandy, like this is one of my favorites of the year uh, so far. And it's going to be one of the smaller movies of the year so far. But um, Nicolas Cage is not a joke. I think that's the point, <laughs> at least with stuff. If he can do stuff like this, he's not a joke in my eyes. He's still like a completely unique performer. Um, so it's just uh, it's an exciting movie. Yeah. Did you know that he was originally they approached him about playing the folk singer part, the Jeremiah part, the villain, essentially? I hadn't heard that, but that does make a certain amount of sense. But I'm really glad the way it worked out. Yeah, because like Linus Roach, who, you know, I'm familiar with in like small parts here and there, but like he brings a, a very particular menace that like is it's it's a little more reptilian than like the 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 volatility that Nicolas Cage has. Like there there's just like I, I couldn't imagine it any other way, basically, at this point. And I'm glad it did work out the way it did, because like 
you know, I think he was, uh, the, when it was initially written, he had uh, a younger actor in mind to play red, but it's just like the sort of bruised wounded, uh, you know, you, you need someone who's been around and seasoned and like mm. had a hard life thus far. And like, that's, in like the last section where like the, the movie's essentially concluded and gotten through its, its sort of revenge fantasy section. And there's still like a, a decent five to 10 minutes after that where you're like, I wonder how this is going to like, what? you know, everybody's been sort of ran through. So I like wonder what's left to be said. And there's a real like heartache at the end of the movie that like that you, you get through someone who's been through, rough shit and you get the sense that like Nicolas Cage knows how to channel that like incredibly well and there's like a soul to his performance and a lunacy too like mm-hmm. in the last couple minutes you're like there still is like something funny to and something you know kind of like wondrous to look at like there's a there's a sequence where he's staring at his passenger seat and which is also mirrored in Black Rainbow yeah. where it's like someone someone looking at their passenger seat and seeing an imagined other person talking to them and like it's it's so there there's a real heartache at the end of mandy that you you get that like you know the you know writer director panos cosmatos was like really processing like real real shit and real trauma to like you know give you this kind of like epic operatic experience you know and he does it in that way that i think you and i often appreciate the most of like you, you can make a movie that literally deals about the death of parents or you can sort of you can mix it into a genre movie to try to get at other things while also creating uh, a sense of entertainment value, something for the audience yeah. to get lost in. And that's always that peanut butter and chocolate. You know, it's that great combination. Um, and I think he really zeroes in on something Nicolas Cage has always had in his toolkit as an actor. But especially lately in the, the, the cage rage era gets lost. It's like, he has some of the saddest eyes yeah. on, on any actor's face. And while he can be crazy, it's like a button he can switch and be a lot of fun. in something like Herzog's bad Lieutenant movie, um, yeah. that's all crazy. Basically from the get go, it's all crazy. But if you add it and mix it around with something like leaving Las Vegas era, or even elements of like adaptation era, Nicholas Cage performances, like some of his best work, you get this amazing swirl. Like you can take it seriously enough where this movie has like moments, especially when the revenge stuff kicks in. I I mean, I was giggling at times because it has this absurdist comic uh, elements to it. Like, I think at one point he lights a cigarette with a a burning decapitated head, if I remember right. And it's glorious. It's amazing. It's, it's all the things that the movie is. It's metal. It's gory. It's funny as hell, but the movie never like forgets to like take itself seriously enough or the take, you know, what it's going through, what it's dealing with seriously enough, because there's real loss at the heart of this movie. And that's what, that is what elevates it. That's what makes it more than just a genre exercise. There are some things that are like, wow, like this is real. And Nicolas Cage has sad eyes and can so emote. I mean, this, the scene you had referenced earlier is one of those highlights where you don't hear the sound. You just take in his face of what he's dealing with. And you don't get that in a lot of the cage rage era. Uh, You don't get that in bad Lieutenant port of call new orleans you know you just get the crazy and i want all of that because this guy doesn't need to be a joke to to the audience like he uh he needs to sort of uh hopefully this is a movie that uh creates a sort of pr turnaround for him uh in the way that like m night Shyamalan is experiencing as a filmmaker where like i think less than 10 years ago if his name came up on a trailer there were reports that the audience laughed because he had became such a joke in in the yeah. sort of industry and was making such schlock and he was so celebrated and then and now he's back after he made like the visit and then had a huge hit with split and you know it's leading him to to the third movie in that series like this guy seems like back in a way and he's had a total turnaround so i i, I don't know if manny's gonna make enough of an imprint that that but it could be the start of something like that and and also uh this has been a good year for cage for us because yeah. Mom and dad. Yeah, man. We started the year with mom and dad. And that's um, that's not all cage rage, but it's a lot of it. But it's a great performance. And he also doesn't overtake that movie from his co-stars, which is a must for something like mom and dad, because that's a fun movie for the entire cast. And uh, 
you know, like it maybe maybe he's trying to just switch things around or maybe like elevate the the film and the, the filmmakers he's trying to work with. But uh, I'm all for it. I think uh, like as much as, you know, he's he's a working actor and maybe some of that work is to get himself out of debt at times. Who knows? Uh, he's also just somebody that like is clearly enough in love with the craft that like it there there doesn't necessarily seem to be a lot strategic about his presence you know like he's he just loves working with assured filmmakers like he mentioned that mark neville dean who directed mom and dad one of the creators of crank and crank 2 speed cruise control um <laughs> was like he was like that's some of the most fun he's ever had on set so he likes working with with like directors with a specific vision and with like a sensibility and like he's worked with everybody you know he worked with Werner herzog like you mentioned He's worked with Martin Scorsese. He's worked with Francis Ford Coppola, who is related to. He's worked with, you know, like David Lynch. Like he's worked with everybody. Yeah. And so like he's somebody that, you know, Michael Bay. Um, John Woo. <laughs> yeah, John, same year. No, this is a year apart, actually. It's true. Uh, it's true. Um, Michael Bay and John Woo. That's, wow. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the apex. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he's, he's worked with like so many filmmakers and we're getting to this point where like, you know, like in the in the corporate culture of, uh, you know, like franchise filmmaking, like it seems like directors don't necessarily matter anymore with their interchangeability with the Star Wars movies and with the Marvel movies. And how, like, you know, filmmakers like Phil Lord and Chris Miller were fired from Solo for bringing something too specific to the movie they, that they were making. Mm-hmm. And, like, with an interchangeability, there becomes something less specific about filmmakers' voices. And, you know, like, with just brand recognition taking precedence over star recognition, you know, you get, you get the sense that, like, actors and directors don't matter. You know, like, and so in that there's like a, a fringe kind of like film culture that like that you, you hear about in film festivals and in this kind of circles that we, we tend to pay attention to mm-hmm. that like this does still matter and it, it is still keeping it alive, you know, and that like, he's going to continue to seek out working with people who push him as much as like, he brings something very specific to the work they're doing, you know, like, mm-hmm. and I think as Panos Cosmatos matures as a filmmaker, like it's just, it's exciting to see Nicolas Cage kind of reintroduced to the world through something like this. Yeah. Epic, like, you know, oh, Epic is so the word it's like, however, uh, I, I, it could be wrong, but I think it was reported. The budget on Mandy is like 6 million. Yeah. If more filmmakers could make a movie this big with that little amount, relatively small amount of budget. And it's, much more personally, much more exciting than a $200 million, most $200 million action movies I see. Yeah. Like, I just think like we could really like movies this small could really become a thing. Like, like I, I hope so, but either way it's exciting. And I think a lot of studios, a lot of filmmakers could really learn from like, how did this get made for that small amount? Because it right. is it is epic, um, and and especially even in that final shot you had alluded to earlier, um, it, it's like the perfect, just buttoning moment for this movie. Say no more. The movie is over, and I just get to take in a gorgeous image that's so big that it it it's like how did they make that? How did that work in this movie? Yeah. It does. This movie's a crazy cocktail, and it's like so much fun. Yeah, and it's like it's it it creates such a sense of enormity and massiveness with so little even though five million dollars is not nothing that's a lot of money more than i'll probably ever touch in my life but (laughs) for a film you know budget in in the scale what it elicits in terms of its sense of scale like you know you said feels bigger than most 200 million dollar movies and the the crescendos it hits the sort of genre crescendos and payoff it delivers is bigger than most maximalist movies and like it's it's just an interesting kind of cul-de-sac it's in because it's so small it it runs through like a, a you know a, a distributor like rlje which like is pushing for it to be in theaters but the theaters that are available to movies like this are you know pretty f- like far flung for yeah. a lot of major cities <clears throat> But like there does seem to be I remember, you know, I'm, I'm going to call out my 
premonitions <laughs> at the end of this episode. But like after I watched it, I was just like, there has they must be doing something big for like the the opening of this. I bet Beyond Fest, which is a local festival here. It's a genre festival. Takes place in Los Angeles. I've mentioned it quite a few times on the show. I was like, I bet they're going to do something for it. It's before the festival actually takes place, but I bet they're going to do something. And I texted you about it. I was like, I have a my spidey sense is tingling that they're going to do something because <laughs> this movie deserves it. It deserves a sense of like an unveiling for the vision that's this enormous, you know? Yeah. And you're like, okay, sure, sure thing, Joe. And then sent me a very condescending. Uh, what did you send me? It was a oh, gif, a Nicolas Cage gif. That's and right. It was a face-off gif where he makes crazy face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Four hours later, Beyond Fest announced that they were going to, or hinted that they were going to announce uh, a Mandy screening, and it sold out almost immediately once tickets went on sale. And so, like, you feel the push that there's a sense of like how big this movie feels and could be. Like, whether there's a place in theaters for it, like we just hope there is and you feel that there are people really rallying for it too totally i i got so stoned off of watching this movie like literally i think mandy is a movie that can make you high like i Mm. i don't i don't like uh i mean it's a bit hyperbolic to say that but apparently i got so ripped off of this movie that i forgot that you had even bought tickets for that show like four different times you know so you know give people a, a peek behind the curtain of us you know how how we chat off mic and plan these episodes i was like dude second show you can get it and you're like are you fucking serious i've told you well, i had said i was like i just finished watching mandy and i already bought tickets to see it in the theater <laughs> bummer it sold out like <laughs> i just got tickets to see it in the theater yeah hope you can see it somehow <laughs> i bought a ticket to see that show that sold out yeah same. what the fuck like i just i thought this was like an exercise and like you know upending my sanity you're like (laughs) you're you're gaslighting me essentially (laughs) you're like is this satirical what are you doing right now yeah i just got high off the movie next level sarcasm yeah that was (laughs) yeah i know i just got stoned panos and nick got me real high watching this movie and that's uh, the danger that is the danger but man take take the plunge this movie's so much goddamn fun um, and it's it's coming to my theater. We're going to do this preview show on Thursday, and it's doing well for that. But uh, I really hope we can keep it at least for a couple weeks because uh, I, I think this movie is one that people could seek out, and it would have real word of mouth. So um, if you have the ability to see it in your city, do not hesitate. It, it's just probably not going to last long. But uh, I don't think anybody would regret seeing this in a theater. So I, I say do it. Yeah, go. Go. All right, man. Seems like a good spot. What do you say? Should we wrap it up? Let's do it. So just chill to the next episode. All right. I hate to I hate to wrap things up. I want to gush about Panos uh, Cosmetos uh, as much as possible and, uh, you know, his films and this one in Nick Cage. But uh, we'll just wrap it up. We'll wrap up this episode of 100, uh, episode 184 of Adjust Your Tracking. As I said at the top, you can find us at theplaylist.net and your podcaster of choice. You want to find us under the Playlist Podcast Network. You'll find our shows and the other episodes from our other podcasts there. And uh, you can email us directly at adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. And whatever podcaster or podcatcher you use, if you feel uh, inclined to subscribe and rate and review, that always helps us and we'd be much appreciative. Uh, but probably not as appreciative as me to get to talk with you, Joe. Although, if I put Stairway to Heaven at the top of this episode, you'd probably kill me, wouldn't you? I'd stop doing the show. <laughs> all right, all right. Anonymous by SSQ it is. Thanks, Joe. Thanks. Thanks.